A Focus Summary of Part 1, Chapters 8 and 9 of Silas Marner Godfrey returned from Mrs. Osgood's party to discover that Dunstan had not come home. But he was too preoccupied with thoughts about Nancy and too accustomed to Dunstan's inconsiderateness to be worried about it. The next morning he joined the rest of the village at the Stone Pits, where they had gathered to discuss and look for information about the robbery. The rain had washed away all footmarks, but a tinderbox was found buried in the mud, and the general opinion was that it must be connected with the robbery. A minority contended that Marner had staged the robbery, but when asked for their evidence, they only shook their heads, said there was no understanding some people, and asserted their right to an opinion, evidence or not. Mr. Macy thought them all fools for thinking it had to have been done by human hands. But when Tukey, the deputy clerk, echoed and amplified his sentiments, Mr. Macy admonished him for always overshooting the mark. Inside the rainbow, a higher consultation was going on among Squire Cass and the other substantial parishioners. Mr. Snell, the landlord, congratulated himself first for having found the tinderbox, and then for putting two and two together when he recalled that a peddler who came through town a month before had stated that he carried one. This idea, once formed, began to grow, and soon the landlord also recalled the man's unpleasant countenance and swarthy foreign complexion. Similarly, when Mr. Crackenthorpe, the rector, asked whether the man wore earrings, and the villagers had the impression that a great deal depended on the fact, a clearer and clearer mental picture of the peddler's earrings emerged, until someone finally declared that she had not only seen them, but that they had made her blood creep. The general feeling in the village was that for the purposes of discussing all the evidence surrounding the peddler, it was their moral duty to spend a lot of time meeting up at the rainbow. Though Silas would have liked to lay blame on the peddler so that he might have a definite image of a whereabouts for his gold, he disappointed his neighbors by testifying that he had no other recollection of the peddler than that he had once called and been turned away at Silas's door but they found plenty of excuses for dismissing his evidence in favor of their own theories. When Godfrey Cass was unconvinced by the tinderbox proof, and recalled the peddler as a merry grinning fellow enough, they dismissed his position as the random talk of youth, and prayed he would do nothing to prevent the justice from drawing up a warrant. But Godfrey's interest in the robbery had faded with his growing concern that Dunstan might be gambling away the money he had received for wildfire, and he rode to Batherley to investigate. On his way he encountered Bryce, who told Godfrey all he knew, that wildfire was dead and that Duncy had walked off. They parted, and Godfrey rode along slowly, imagining the scene of confession to his father that he could no longer escape. If he didn't tell the whole truth, Dunstan would come back and tell it all out of spite. He could take the blame himself, saying that he and not Dunstan had squandered the money, but he much preferred to be blamed for the lesser sin of loaning it to Dunstan. He might not have been a good fellow, he thought, but he wasn't a scoundrel. He spent the remainder of the day preparing himself for his confession reminding himself that this might be his last chance to tell the truth himself before Dunstan or Molly did, 
rehearsing what he would say and how he would say it in a manner least likely to provoke his father's characteristic outbursts of anger and violent resolutions, and hoping that his father's pride might induce him to hush the matter up. But still, the next morning he was unable to recapture these arguments for confession, and instead felt only the dread of its consequences. He felt inclined again to rely on chance to save him, and he rationalized this habitual impulse. Godfrey took his breakfast earlier than usual, and then waited in the parlor for the arrival of his father, who appeared two hours later. The old squire was a man who, though his person showed signs of habitual neglect and his dress was slovenly, still maintained the authoritativeness of voice and carriage belonging to one who never associated with any gentry higher than himself. The squire greeted his son with characteristic gruffness, and then, when Godfrey said he had been waiting to speak to him, threw himself into a chair with indifference, and ordered Godfrey to ring for his ale. Godfrey had only a chance to tell him that there had been a piece of ill luck with wildfire, before the squire launched into a speech about his spoiled sons and miserable finances, seemingly meant to ward off any request for money. When Godfrey told him that in fact he had asked Dunstan to sell wildfire, that Dunstan had staked him in a hunt, and that now he could not pay his father the hundred pounds he had intended to, the squire was dumbfounded as to why his son would be giving him money rather than asking for it. But when he learned the truth, that Fowler had paid Godfrey the money and Godfrey had given it to Dunstan, confusion turned to rage, and he threatened to turn the whole pack of his sons out of the house. Feeling that there was some deeper lie at the bottom of the situation, he demanded that Duncy be brought before him to give his own account. When Godfrey told him Duncy had not returned, he was more concerned that he might be deprived of the chance to make good on his threat than he was that Duncy might have been killed. When questioned about why he gave Duncy the money, Godfrey tried to dismiss the matter as young men's fooleries that would make no difference to the squire. But this only provoked the squire into renewing his threat to turn his sons out of the house. Then the squire chose a new point of attack, criticizing Godfrey for being such a shilly-shallying fellow that he won't propose to Nancy unless his father forbids it. He pressed Godfrey into confessing that he wished to marry Nancy, and harassed him for being too cowardly to ask her. Godfrey fabricated excuses for not having done so, and begged the squire not to say anything on his behalf. The squire then ordered Godfrey to sell Duncy's horse, and told him that if he knew where Duncy was, he should tell him that he needn't bother coming home. Godfrey left the room feeling relieved that his confession left him in no worse a position, but also uneasy that he had further entangled himself in lies. He fled again to his usual refuge, that some favorable chance might save him from unpleasant consequences.' 